0: our passage is going to be uh, Micah chapter 5, and as we look at and do a three-week series in Advent, as we just look at the the coming of Christ, and we're going to take a a peek and look at this, this idea of the kingdom, because once we come out of New Year's, we're going to look at uh, we've just been looking at us as the church, the people of God, and what does it look like for us. But then we're going to look at the kingdom and how do we become uh, people who are focused on uh, God's redeeming effect on this world. Uh, and um, so, just is kind of as a, a way to tie those two together, our, our theme for this Advent season is going to be the King. The King is coming. Uh, the King has come, and the King will come again and usher in. Uh, and has ushered in his kingdom, though yet not fully. And so uh, we're going to look at those three aspects, and uh, when the king is coming, especially when we're 2,000 years after his birth, uh, we're going to rewind and look at one of the prophets of the Old Testament looking towards the coming of Jesus. So the, so we're looking at Advent, uh, Advent candles, the first four weeks before Uh, Christmas, and it's a time of waiting for the arrival of Jesus and of the Messiah. And so uh, if you would, would you stand with me as we look at Micah, the prophet Micah, it's kind of, you know, it's past the Psalms, it's not yet to Matthew if you're uh, new to the minor prophets. Um, And uh, Micah writes this starting in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Uh, God, be in our midst, and uh, thank you that you speak to us, that you are revealing yourself uh, in former times through the prophets, but now through your Son. And God, as we think of Jesus, the king uh, that has come to earth, Father, I pray that we would not just merely hear uh, the story of Christmas and be caught up in nostalgia. Uh, Father, there, uh, I pray that we would grasp uh, the, the, the change, the cosmic change of you beginning to usher in your kingdom. Uh, Father, that your kingdom has come. And, Father, we pray that you would even change our thinking as we reflect on that this Christmas. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, please be seated. There's a uh, pastor, theologian uh, named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a German, uh, and he lived in the time of World War II at the rise of Nazi Germany and uh, in the midst of that and uh, Adolf Hitler came to power in early 1933 and uh, when that happened, uh, there were many who were outspoken against the whole ideology of uh, the Third Reich. And, um, and Bonhoeffer was one who was criticizing, even publicly on radio, uh, the, the idea of the Fuhrer. Basically, that there, um, what he said, it was just dangerous. And he said, leaders of offices which set themselves up as gods mock God. And so he was in opposition against this whole idea of, of uh, Hitler and him coming to power and their whole ideology of the way they set Germany up. That was, that was um, uh, about 12 years prior to uh, the, uh, the fall of, of Nazi Germany. So for 10 years, uh, Bonhoeffer was an outspoken, uh, op- outspoken um, one in opposition against uh, what was going on in Germany until uh, Hitler and the Nazis had had enough, and so they arrested Bonhoeffer and others in nineteen forty three and so in nineteen forty three the, the early part of forty three he's arrested and he 's sitting in a Nazi prison for uh, for six months and he enters into Christmas of nineteen forty three having sat in a Nazi prison for now six six months, uh, and just for context, uh, everybody well aware of what's going on because the, concent- the first concentration camp was built 10 years prior. And so uh, you would say that a German prison is not exactly the place you want to be. Uh, it was, even as a German citizen, it was horrific. And how would you feel if you're Bonhoeffer and you're sitting in a German prison now for six months, assuming that you will never leave prison, and you will most likely die there. How do you feel? You're scared, you're hungry, I'm sure you're not being treated well, you're weak, you're, uh, you're, you feel in some terms, in terms of your, your situation, you feel hopeless, uh, dark, uh, can feel cold. And so from prison, Bonhoeffer wrote an Advent devotional. Reflections on God in the manger. And I was like, huh, I could get into reading that. And uh, as, as a man unjustly detained, no trial, just put in prison. Uh, I don't know if you've read a lot of Advent devotionals. Sometimes they lack punch. Uh, or maybe realism. This one was dripping with realism. A man sitting in a German prison in the midst of World War II, uh, he wrote one of the most impactful devotionals I have ever read on Advent. And he writes this, one of his letters that he wrote out from his prison cell, he wrote to his parents, and he said that we should celebrate Christmas despite the ruins around us. We should celebrate Christmas despite the ruins around us. And and as I thought through that concept, that is exactly who the prophets are writing to. The prophets of the Old Testament, they're not writing to the uh, 1940s Germans, but they're writing to people who are in the midst of their life uh, falling apart, their, their life being under siege. They're in the midst of uh, things becoming Ruins, And, and I, I think for us to really understand that the king is coming, we, there's this sense where we have to be the ones that are feeling the ruins around us. Look at, go back to one verse before we got there. In verse, in verse 1, before our passage, Micah says now, and he's quoting the Lord, Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Okay, Verse 1 is a prophecy about what's going to befall Israel. So just in case uh, you don't know and remember where Micah wrote. Micah wrote in uh, the latter part of the 700s BC. And remember the numbers go down. And so uh, in, in 722, the northern kingdom, Israel had already fallen to the Assyrians and were dispersed. So Micah's life goes from before and after the fall of Israel, and he, but he's prophesying to the southern kingdom, Judah. They had just watched their brothers and sisters get, uh, get conquered by Assyria, and now they're being prophesied that a siege is going to come against them. Some uh, commentators are split on, on probably what this is referencing in terms of what siege or what attack. Uh, 701, there was a, was a siege against, um, uh, against uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, but, but in 586 is when Babylon ultimately conquers Jerusalem. Most commentators are landing that this is talking about 586 uh, because uh, when, the, when the judge... They will strike the judge of Israel, it's kind of another phrase for the idea of their king, on the cheek, the last uh, ruler of Judah at that time. That is exactly what happened to him. Regardless of which attack it's referencing, if your life is under siege, you've just watched the northern kingdom fall, how do you feel about life You feel like you're in turmoil. Uh, You know, 586 will ultimately see Jerusalem destroyed, the city in ruins, walls falling down, they're under attack. In a sense, their life is in turmoil. And so if verse 1 is speaking of the judge of Israel, or the king of Israel being slapped on the cheek, the king is now powerless. And remember that uh, the king was was the one who would be uh, the not the hope of Israel but the very one that would allow israel uh, to um, uh, to have power and and, and it would be wrapped up in the king is their hope, and so that 's what's what 's going on as far as the description. look at verse three, therefore he okay now who 's this he the he 's change actually in the verses this he is is the Lord. Okay. Um, and uh, and you'll see where it flips. Therefore he shall give them up. Until the time. When she who is in labor. Has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers. His is the actual one who is promised. Um, shall return to the people of Israel. So they're under siege. And what's the promise that God says to them. Is that they will be. What? Given up given up until their, to their enemies until the time when this promised king shows up. They're going to be in prison, so to speak, for 500 years, and they're going to look at their life that once was, and they're going to feel the ruins around them. Uh, and, and so I think for us to really gr- grasp Advent, and I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here, Uh, For us to grasp Advent, we have to feel the turmoil and the ruins around us. We have to grapple with it. We have to wrestle with it. We have to be gripped by it. We have to become restless over it, not settled with it. Maybe even having no peace over our situation. Because turmoil, in a good sense, the ruins of life as we constructed them when they fall... Could it be that turmoil and the ruins of our life strips, strip us of our lesser pleasures in this world? They take away the things we typically rest on so that we might hope for something even better. And we, th- we typically think about this as just a, a torturous process, that our life is falling apart, situationally things are not lining up, but however, isn't that exactly the gift that we need at Christmas? We need to receive King Jesus rather than say life is grand and I don't need anything. Bonhoeffer goes off, goes on to write about restlessness uh, and he says this, he says, sorry if it's a little small, but we kind of needed it uh, all on one page. Uh, The only ones who can wait are people who carry restlessness around with them. Now, Let me clarify, I think he's speaking to restlessness in situations regarding what's going on in your life, okay? Thus, Advent can be celebrated only by those whose souls give give them no peace, who know that they are poor and incomplete, and who sense something of the greatness that is supposed to come before which they can only bow in humble timidity waiting until he inclines himself towards us, the Holy One himself, God, the child in the manger. Let's stop there before we keep going. That the only ones that can really enjoy Christmas as God intends it are the ones who are restless and have no peace in their life as it's constructed. Because it's the one who feels complete, the one who feels no pain, the one who feels they they lack nothing, they do not need a king in the manger. So he's saying, taken from one in a German prison camp, the one who is restless with their situation, who has, in a sense, this no peace feeling of their life, that's the one who can enjoy Christmas. He goes on to, one more slide, he says, God is coming, the Lord Jesus is coming, Christmas is coming, rejoice, O Christendom. In your restlessness, in your lack of peace, rejoice, because the one who is your hope is coming. So I want put to put in front of us this Advent that we would feel the weight of what's wrong in this world. And that's very much a part of Advent. Because if we skip over what's wrong and kind of gloss over it, uh, that, in a sense, I think we miss, why would God's people anticipate the coming of Jesus? Let's feel the weight of what's wrong. But then, that's not where we stop. There's this active gazing beyond the ruins. Uh, And so we could use words like hope like faith or waiting, that the ruins or what is broken, what is incomplete, what is has us in turmoil, the difficulty, that's not the end. It was never intended to be the end. But God's people, yes, are ones who are looking beyond what was promised. And so in verse, or, or beyond what was uh, there um, in our struggle, verse two kind of kind of puts it in context. So remember, the struggle on either side of verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, okay? And so Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, there was another Bethlehem, and so that second word is specifying which Bethlehem they're talking about. It's the one right down the street from Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of David, Jerusalem, the uh, the one the place where the king resides. But yet, out of Jerusalem is not where hope is found. Hope comes out of Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem, the small. The unimportant uh, The one who, who does, is so small They don't even consider it to be part of the clan of Judah I think that is somewhat tongue in cheek But what's, uh, what's great in this Is uh, it says It's too little uh, to be among the clans of Judah From you shall come forth from me If God is speaking Wouldn't you expect it to be the opposite? That from, uh, that from me shall come for you a ruler. That I'm going to send it to you for your benefit. But that's not the phrase. The phrase is from you, Bethlehem, shall come for me. So the emphasis is not on God's provision. It's on the, where the, uh, the ruler and the king will come from. Because why would that matter is because throughout all of uh, Old Testament history, God's people have been waiting for the coming Messiah. The one who would rule over Israel, who would shepherd the flock, who would be the, the ruler and the good king that they could follow. And his kingdom will have no end. And so from the place of David, from the line of David, comes the promised Messiah. And so there's this sense where... Uh, the, the promised king is now coming. But what are they looking for? So if context of verse 1, verse 3, and everything else in there is the context of being attacked and, and potentially being destroyed by enemies, what kind of Messiah or king would they expect? One that would push back their, their attackers. One that would push back their enemies. And so that's why all the people around Jesus's day we're expecting a conquering king to fix our situational turmoil but that's not the king that came the king that came is one uh, that truly we are waiting for and so this idea of waiting is rooted in the promise of God because God says to his people I am going to do something the king is coming and that ought to give you hope So the promise of what will come ought to change how we live today. Is the promise of Christmas, is the promise of our our Messiah, is the promise of our salvation, does it change anything in your life? It ought to, but does it? You're saying, well, Jesus already came. Yes, but he is coming again. In a sense, he came and, and began and ushered in the beginning of the kingdom, but yet it is not fully complete. He is coming again. So, so Advent is a time of waiting. Old Testament, they were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. We sit here waiting as well. And Bonhoeffer says this, so what, what kind of waiting would you be doing from a prison cell? You know, uh, I think waiting is pretty much all you do. But he says this, celebrating Advent means being able to wait waiting is an art that in, that our impatient age has forgotten and I think we're a lot worse uh, you know many decades later whoever does not know the austere blessedness of waiting that is of hopefully doing without that person will never experience the full blessing of fulfillment what is he saying? He's saying you've got to look straight into the ruins of what is wrong in this world. Feel the sense of, uh, of um, doing without those things. In a sense, not having what you need in that fulfillment uh, in the time that you want it. And God meets you in that. That that's Christmas. That's Advent leading up. It's the waiting on God. And in that waiting, we find ultimate hope. Advent is about longing for things to be made right. Advent is about longing for God to deliver on his promises. So, in a sense, what are you waiting for? As I thought through this, am I an active, do I live in an, in an active waiting kind of like looking beyond the ruins of my life to looking beyond what's broken, looking beyond the things that give me pause and and looking with expectancy that God will work. What does active waiting look like? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't look like because I think we probably fall into one of these two camps primarily or maybe both um, at different times. One is just endure. Okay, so to active wait is not to just endure, put your head down one foot in front of another and just make it through the day. That is not biblical active waiting. Okay, I'm just going to make it. It's hard. I'm just going to make it. And we all know what that feels like. We're just, we're just process, we're just going through life. The other is distraction. We like that one. You know, life is difficult. Life is really hard to bear up under, so I'm going to distract myself. Right? I'm going to go play golf. Um, please don't take that away from me. Um, uh, I'm going to. Uh, no, I. You might go shopping. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to eat. I'm going to work. I'm going to work my tail off. I'm going to watch football. I'm going to distract myself from what's difficult. Again, not biblical. Waiting. None of those things are bad. But when they take the place of us pursuing our Savior, they are. We're saying, this can, this can satisfy my soul. This can, can make the, the unrest feel better. This can take the place of my Savior. And so, are you one that chases after distraction? Or are you one that's just, you know what, head down, foot after, you know, step after step, just, you know, nose to the grindstone? Neither of those is this active waiting that God desires. Because active waiting is is how long, O Lord? The how longs of of the Psalms are, will you forget me forever? Feeling like God in his patience, maybe he's forgotten us. God, when will you deliver on your promises? God, I'm watching, I'm waiting, I want to see it. God, when our, our, our kids are struggling and maybe not walking with the Lord, God, when will you capture their hearts? Will you draw them back? When a relationship is broken and it just feels like it, it is not healing, active waiting is not distract yourself away from it or just press on with life. It's, it's looking for God and his goodness in the middle of it. God, where are you and will you work? So what are you restless about? In a sense, if you're not restless over your situations, I wonder, are we truly going to understand and appreciate Christmas? You know, what's unresolved? Don't ignore those things. Take them in waiting before the Lord. But what are we waiting for? Are we merely waiting for God to resolve our situations so that we can be happy again? America says that's what we're waiting for. American Christians tend to say that's what we're waiting for. But ultimately, Christmas says we're waiting for a king. We're waiting for a king to come in and rule. Because in verse 1, the king is powerless. In verse 2, they're going to be, or verse 3, they're going to be put under the regime and the power of another, uh, another nation. Verse 2 is the promise of a ruler who will come to Israel. You and I don't need our situations fixed as much as we need a king to rule in our lives. And, but what's interesting is we tend to stop there. I need a king. Keith needs a king. Keith needs a lord. Or you personally need a lord. But so does our world. And so as you look at, at Micah and and you see these, these verses. That, that all of this, the rule of, of uh, this, this king will stretch To the ends of the earth. And we're going to look at next week how that's not just in people in the human heart. That all things come back under uh, the the reign and the rule of Jesus. So we're waiting for our king. What do we see in verse 4 in the second half of 5? That he. So remember the he in verse 3? That he was the Lord, or or God, God the Father. Verse 4, the he is a different person, This is the king that will come. Ultimately it's pointing to Jesus. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the mighty or the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now uh, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The completion of our hope is not found in our situations improving. It's found in the first part of verse five that he, the king, will be our peace. And the idea of peace is not like that peaceful, easy feeling, a calm that we feel. The the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, okay? It's the greeting that that, um, people of Israel would say to each other. It's also the goodbye. It's basically, you know, uh, it, it it points to this idea of wholeness and completeness. It's not just feel good about things, it's see God's hand Restoring all things as it should be in wholeness and completeness. And he, Jesus, will be your peace, your shalom, your completeness. So without him, there is no real real completeness and things coming back to being right again. It's the shalom of God that comes through King Jesus. You and I need a king. We were never meant to rule our own lives. And yet, everything in culture is be your own boss. Nobody can tell you what to think. Whatever you feel is right. And as much as we want to be sensitive to to feelings and, and how people are responding to things, ultimately, we were never designed to rule our lives. we need a king and king jesus comes in and offers real completeness real healing real peace bonhoeffer wrote this to his fiance from his prison cell his fiance maria he says this he says i think we're going to have an exceptionally good christmas wow The very fact that every outward circumstance precludes our making provision uh, for it will show whether we can be content with what is truly essential. That God in his goodness would give us the greatest Christmas by taking away all the things that we tend to rely on and miss him. He goes on. He says, I used to be very fond of thinking up and buying presents. But now that we have nothing to give, the gift of God, the gift God gave us in the birth of Christ will seem all the more glorious. The emptier our hands, the better we understand. And then he goes on with, actually he started with this, but I'm going to end with it. This is an interesting thing. How does any of this pertain to us? He says this life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits and hopes, the door is shut and can be only or can only be opened from the outside. You cannot let yourself out of your own prison. You have to be let out. You have to be sprung free. You can look for all sorts of things inside of that cell, but the only way to be free and to understand real completeness, real wholeness, real uh, l- uh, real peace in life, real joy, real healing, is to know the King. King Jesus came so that we might be freed from our sin, from the, the tyranny of that, from In a sense, wanting to be king ourselves, he came so that we might have life. Are you still stuck in a prison cell? Or have you been set free by knowing King Jesus? Let's pray. Uh, God, would you break in this morning and would you uh, allow Christmas, Advent, this waiting to become the the pervasive thing Thought of us over these next three weeks God I pray that we wouldn't just go from one thing to the next and, and just miss the beauty of this whole season God help us reflect help us to be restless over situations in life but God help that to drive us to knowing you God that we would wait for you that we would wait to know you that you would heal and give us peace God I pray that we would be active in our waiting uh thanks so thank you for the reminder of christmas thank you for the the uh, joy uh, of jesus and uh and knowing him so god i pray you'd meet us here um i pray for those who have never been freed from the prison cell of their life god would you draw them to know jesus today I pray these things in christ's name amen